So after last week's grumpy prophecy from Amos, we get Zephaniah this week. Just when you thought it was safe to come back to church. You can almost hear Zephaniah say, Yeah, Amos, he's just a dresser of sycamore trees. You're a pansy picker. I can outgrump him any day. Tradition holds that Zephaniah was a prophet who was a contemporary of Jeremiah's, another rather grumpy guy, who prophesied at the beginning or around the beginning of the reign of King Josiah towards the end of the 7th century BC. King Josiah ascended the throne at the ripe old age of eight and a regent was put in charge while Josiah grew and came of age. It was also a time in which the temple had been overrun with cultic idols, particularly devotion to the ancient god known in the Old Testament as Baal. And Baal was a good old agrarian god, sort of god you could trust to do the right things if you made the right sacrifices and of course punish you if you didn't. A primitive God in every sense of the word. So Zephaniah has made it clear he's had enough with the complacency of not just the cultic leaders but the people of Judah who are putting up with this nonsense that has overthrown his God Yahweh, the ancient God, who called the people of Israel to begin with. If that's not tough enough for us, then we get another, yet another, vexing parable from Matthew. Now, it might be easy enough for me to turn this into a stewardship sermon and say, pledge, or there will be crying and gnashing of teeth. But it doesn't quite work that way, does it? Who is this master, this absentee landlord, who scares the living daylights out of his slaves and then leaves and comes back expecting what he gave them with interest? Wait, pay up, ante up. Scholars have spilled an unbelievable amount of ink over this passage. And as Annette reminded me, as we were getting ready for the 8 o'clock service this morning, she said, I looked at some of the commentaries, and she said there was one commentator who just threw up his hands and said, Matthew got it wrong. Matthew just got it wrong. This is not what Jesus intended. Now, what did Jesus intend? Jesus was preaching to an audience that probably knew the phenomenon of absentee landlords quite well and who would have been very sympathetic with the slave that took and hid his master's money in the field and then when he got back confronted him about the truth of how just unfair his master really was and then suffered the consequences. In rabbinical tradition Actually, the slave who takes and hides his master's money had actually relinquished all liability for it. If he did nothing with it, if he took no risks with it, he wasn't liable for it. 
he had basically washed his hands. And what is this business about come and enter the joy of your master? What kind of joy is that of lording it over others? And then we have to wonder what would have happened to that slave who invested the five talents? What would have happened if he had lost it all in the bet? Would his master have come back and been happy with him? Where is God in all of that? A vivid parable like this one is not meant to be explained or sort of theologically resolved, but is given to us and probably to Jesus' first hearers and probably to Matthew's community decades later as something for us to ponder, to turn over and over and over again. Because at one turn, perhaps God is the master who has given us many gifts and we are called to take risks and invest them in the life of community and in the relationships that touch us and in every encounter of this life with the hope of return. And then on the other hand, we know those times when we have missed an opportunity or perhaps we don't wish to take a risk and God has met us when we have been cast out into the darkness when we have suffered crying and gnashing teeth. The truth of the matter is most of us in this room, I believe, are uncomfortable with a fire and brimstone God. We are not all that sympathetic with those guys who stand on street corners with signs that say the end is near. The truth of the matter also is that we are uncomfortable with a God who behaves like a cosmic ATM machine and who is nice to the good girls and boys because most of us have tried that game of bargaining with God and have sooner or later lost the bargain because bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. We know that somewhere deep in our soul. Unless we want to take seriously the prosperity gospel, which in an extreme version would have you pray, and if you pray the right way, you can get that late model expensive car. Seriously. You can find that brand of religion in America today, but it's not new. That's primitive religion in every sense of the word. What are we being told by these readings? Jesus has constantly framed these vexing parables saying it's as if the kingdom of heaven is like this. Some think maybe he's suggesting what Matthew's community knew very well and that is that the kingdom of heaven is constantly under threat by the ways of this world. Matthew's community knew what being cast into outer darkness and crying and gnashing of teeth was like when they were ostracized from their Jewish brothers and sisters after the fall of the temple in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. They lost the wager for the future of Judaism and they were left out in the cold. 
They knew what it was like to carry Jesus' teachings out there. But they also knew something else. Sooner or later, we all have to grow up and begin to face the reality that our lives are not light or dark, but are a combination of both. And that our lives are not always filled with joy or good things, but also have in them what Richard Rohr calls necessary suffering. Those hard things that shake us out of our complacency. Those difficult things that when they come along do at some level feel like the wrath of God. And we might be tempted at times to blame those difficult things on God. And then we're given a choice. It's easy to give thanks when times are good. Harder to give thanks when times are difficult. It is easy for us to believe, as probably Zephaniah's audience believed, that because times are good, we are in favor with the gods. The flip side of that is a very strange thing that we sometimes tell ourselves when times are bad. We find strange comfort in the belief that I've done something to deserve this. Why? Well, because it gives us some sense of control. It gives us the mindset that we believe we are gods, too, in a way. But sooner or later we grow up. We realize that neither of those approaches really work. What if... It's the favorite question my mentor in the Brotherhood of St. Gregory likes to ask. He was a Presbyterian pastor and a wonderful preacher, still is, for many, many, many years. His favorite theological question is, what if? What if ours is not a God simply of light, nor simply a God of wrath? but a God who comprehends both the light and the dark, both life and death, both joy and suffering. What if? King Josiah grew up and assumed full authority as king over Judah. And he heeded Zephaniah's words. He cleansed the temple of Baal, or the Baals if you like, got rid of the cults around the idols, and everyone and everything who maintained all of that, and restored Yahweh, the ancient God of Israel, to the temple. Because you see, there was something different about Yahweh. With Baal, you could negotiate. With Baal, if you made the right sacrifices, the harvest would be brought in the following season. And if it wasn't brought in, that means you had done something wrong. And you could find somebody to blame. 
But you see, Yahweh had been different. Yahweh had led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt and through the dark times in the wilderness. Yahweh had been with them when they had been disobedient and unruly, had chastened them when they needed chastening, had healed them when they needed to be healed, had cajoled them when they got complacent. Yahweh hadn't said, it will always be good. Yahweh had simply said, I will always be with you. In a few decades after King Josiah's reign, the Israelites will go into a multi-generational captivity in Babylon. But Yahweh will be with them. They will return. Zephaniah's partner in crime, Jeremiah, will remind them. What if we don't have the God we want? The God who behaves like an absentee landlord and who is wrathful when we are disobedient on the one hand, or the God who behaves like cosmic ATM and awards the good boys and good girls. And what if we have a God we need who comprehends both our darkness and our light, who is with us through the good times and the bad, through the thick and the thin. Matthew's community knew this. It's why the Gospel of Matthew ends with the risen Christ telling his followers, I am with you even to the end of the age. I am with you always, he tells them. What are we to do then? with a God with whom we can no longer negotiate, for good or for ill. How then do we behave in ways that make us what Paul calls us, children of the light? Stay tuned. Next week we get the capstone of this series of parables and teachings of Jesus. He will tell us how to be children of the light and to embrace the God we may not want, but the God we have and above all, the God we need. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R M-V for Mill Valley .org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.